0: Heads up horror fans, say no to drugs and stay out of the basement. You're listening. We interrupt our program to bring you final girl Friday. Friday. Welcome to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. I especially enjoy watching horror films around the holidays. And one of my personal favorite holiday horror films, which is also just one of my favorite slasher films in general, is Black Christmas from 1974. And I thought it would be an appropriate time to talk about this film as Black Christmas 2019 was released on the 13th of this month. I have not seen it yet. I imagine I will eventually see it. I did eventually break down and watch the 2006 remake. So someday I will watch the the Blumhouse Black Christmas. Um, I didn't have the highest hopes for it. And from what I saw uh, from the trailers, it's just it. I don't have the highest hopes, but I'm not here to rag on it. I'm actually grateful because uh, it did what a lot of remakes do, which is remind me of just how much I love the original. And although I do already watch Black Christmas from 74 every year, I've watched it a couple extra times this year in preparation for talking about it tonight. Before I jump into it, though, I do have a few things that I wanted to cover, namely that I've been gone for a few weeks. Um... At the end of November, I was hit with what was the worst bout of the flu I may have ever had in my adult life. It was pretty rough. And then at the end of my recovery from the flu, Alan and I moved into our new thankfully much larger apartment. I had hoped that we would be able to get settled into the new place fairly quickly so I could jump right back into recording episodes every week, but the apartment turned out to be in much worse condition than we had anticipated. So I've spent the last nearly three weeks now um, painting, scrubbing, just working tirelessly to try to get this place livable and it is coming along i'm really happy with this new apartment Uh, but the office isn't quite set up yet so i'm just sitting in a room that is empty of all but like giant stacks of boxes i feel kind of like i'm in a fort which is which is nice but i couldn't wait anymore i'd been away from you guys far too long and i really wanted to talk about black christmas so i'm sure that a lot has been happening in horror news as well since i've been away i have not been paying attention to it so (laughs) i'll be getting my uh i'll be getting my act together in that vein Definitely by the end of the year. As far as the Slaughter High t shirt giveaway and accompanying episode are concerned, they are absolutely still happening. Uh, I won't be announcing the winner of the t shirt giveaway today. If you are new to the podcast, new to the Discord, and you would like to enter to win a Slaughter High t shirt, it's just a drawing. There's nothing fancy or special that you have to do. I'm just going to be drawing names out of Alan's hat. So uh, if you would like to win a t shirt for Slaughter High, head over to the Discord and uh, submit your name in the B-Movie of the Month channel. I'm definitely still going to be doing the the B-Movie of the Month segment. It's just, everything just got thrown off. And uh, next week is probably when I'll be announcing the winner of the t-shirt giveaway, our very first giveaway. And it's funded by you guys. So thank you so much. While I was away, we also had a few people join the Discord community. So we have some new members over there. And I am thrilled. Uh, cyberfan, Leica Schnitzel, The Gifted Kid, and Taylor. Welcome, guys. I'm sorry it's been a little quiet over there the last couple of weeks with the holiday season and me being gone. And we usually are a pretty chatty bunch. And we're just so happy to have you. I also wanted to thank Mel, my most recent patron. Thank you so much for joining the Patreon. Um... Also, thanks to Chad, Suzy Q, Alan, and Eli, my other patrons. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for waiting for me to come back. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and I hope that everybody out there is having an excellent holiday, whatever your holiday may be. And if you don't celebrate holidays at all, I hope you're having a good December. If you're new out there and you would like information on how you too can join the Discord or the Patreon, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on how you can do just that. And as usual, if you've not seen Black Christmas from 1974, I encourage you to just shut this podcast off and go watch it yourself. Otherwise, I am about to spoil the entire film for you. Black Christmas, released in the United States on the 20th of December, 1974, written by Roy Moore and directed by Bob Clark. Which, right off the bat, you know you're in good hands, at least in terms of Christmas-related entertainment, because Bob Clark not only directed Black Christmas, but he also directed A Christmas Story. I mean, you know, if you're looking for holiday-themed fun, you know you can trust Bob Clark to deliver, and he absolutely does. Black Christmas is not just a great horror film, which it is, but it's also an important horror film uh, for a couple of different reasons. It's largely considered to be one of Canada's greatest horror achievements. Um, and I mean, I, I love... Canadian horror films, particularly Canadian holiday horror films. You got Black Christmas, My Bloody Valentine, Happy Birthday to Me. Canada does holiday horror really well. And I feel like Black Christmas is perhaps the best example of that. For a long time, it was also kind of incorrectly regarded as the first slasher film to put the audience in the killer's POB. I think that, you know, in the last decade or so, it's become much more widely known that Peeping Tom from 1960s was actually the first film to do that. But Black Christmas was definitely among the first. And it's arguably among the first slasher films in general as well. It is a godmother, if you will, to a lot of films that we know and love. I think a lot of slasher films owe thanks to Black Christmas. And it also, for me, I don't know if any of you out there listening remember me talking about this a a long time ago, but I am a complete sucker for the use of telephones in horror movies, particularly if the telephones are being used by the killer. Uh, And Black Christmas was, it was not the first film that I personally saw utilize telephone in that way um, because I saw Scream prior to seeing Black Christmas. I saw Scream when I was 13, when it came out in the theater. And I think it was probably two or three years later that I first saw Black Christmas. It was definitely, it was one of the first films I saw that, that featured phones in that way. And man, it just, oh, it, oh, I love it. I, I love obscene, phone-caller killers. They scare me, you know? Black Christmas tells the story of the girls at the Pi Kappa Sig sorority house uh, on and around Christmas, and the terror that they suffer at the hands of an obscene phone-caller. And on its surface, uh, it seems like a straightforward slasher film. You know, group of girls being plucked off one by one, and the final girl ultimately overcoming the killer. It seems like it could be that simple, but it really isn't. One of the reasons why Black Christmas is, for me, one of the greatest horror films ever made is because, yes, it does feature a lot of those very common elements um, or what would become very common elements in the slasher subgenre, but the writer Roy Moore really managed to deliver just two heaping handfuls of very interesting, fleshed-out characters. It really reminds me of what is lacking so much, especially in more contemporary slasher films, where we just put six or seven random kids together where the only thing that they have in common is that they're relatively close together in age. Most of them don't even get along, we barely learn anything about them, and then it just becomes a kill by number spree where it's just how, how are they going to die and when. I mean don't get me wrong, I will watch kill by number slashers all the live long day, but when it comes down to it I prefer films like Black Christmas every time. Every character in this story, no matter how seemingly insignificant they may be, they all have something going on in their lives. They all have their own little story. And you care, or I care anyway. I care what happens to these people. (laughs) I'm very invested right from the beginning. For fans of the genre, there are a lot of really great familiar faces in this film as well. Margot Kidder, who plays Barb, the... Every bit as snarky as you would imagine she would be. Resident drunk who is just constantly doing and saying the unexpected. She's so entertaining in a way that only Margot Kidder could be. You have John Saxon playing Lieutenant Ken Fuller. Surprise, surprise. John Saxon playing yet another really good cop. Um, I guess on occasion he's also played a really bad cop. But he plays cops and he plays them very well. The beautiful Andrea Martin playing Phil. I I really like her character a lot. We didn't get quite enough of her, but... um, but she's fantastic. What we do get of her is great. You also have Doug McGrath playing Sergeant Nash, who contributes greatly to a lot of the comic relief of the film. I don't know if you would necessarily call it comic relief, but just there's a lot of humor in the film that it's just sort of naturally present. Colin from Bloody Good Horror said it really well, I think. He said, Black Christmas is a bleak movie, but it still succeeds in achieving a fairly goofy yet appropriate sense of humor throughout most of its runtime. It derives much of this humor from poking fun at an inept police sergeant who, among other shortcomings, doesn't know what fallatio means. And yeah, I, I think I really like the way that he said that. I I do believe that the humor in Black Christmas is very appropriate. At no point do I feel like the film is trying too hard to make me laugh. I don't even really feel like the humor exists to cut the tension, which a lot of the time, you know, that's exactly the only reason that it exists. I think the film also owes a lot to Carl Zittrer who composed the music. It's a, It has a very minimalist score and It it works so well for the movie. They really could have done so many different things with the music because, you know, it the story focuses around a group of sorority girls um, in the mid 70s. They really could have and they went pretty heavy on some of the pop cultural references, primarily like the posters that are all around all the girls' rooms and things like that. But they could have really gone overboard with the pop music at the time or rock music at the time to kind of just hammer home the rebellious nature of some of these girls, but they didn't do that at all. In fact, I don't remember there being any recognizable songs in the film at all that weren't Christmas carols. And the score is this, these very minimalist, kind of like somebody just like running their hand haphazardly down a harp. Zitra revealed in an interview that a large portion of the score was created uh, with silverware, forks, knives, and then also um, like combs, like fine tooth combs. Um, And he would tie them to the strings of his piano so that they would warp. And uh, I love that. Like, it's definitely evident. Very disturbing. Beautiful music. Carl Zittra also did music for uh, films like The Gate and Body Parts. Also Curtains, which I was talking about during the Prom Night episode. I guess he was a music consultant on that film. Um, But I have seen it since I talked about it uh, during prom night, and it, the music was also very good. So even as a consultant, he he nails it. I really I really like Carl Zittre. Cinematography was done by Reginald Morris, who also worked with Bob Clark on A Christmas Story and Porky's. And actually, Porky's and Black Christmas uh, share a lot of the same crew members. The film was produced by Bob Clark and Telefilm Canada. And uh, it was filmed on a budget of only $620,000, which um, today is just a little over $3 million. And they did a lot with that budget. I mean, you could, there aren't a whole lot of bells and whistles in Black Christmas, but what they did, they did very well. And I don't even feel like I'm watching a low-budget film when I watch this film. It's a very immersive movie, and I think that also might be why it's so easy to forget that it, it was made on a pretty modest budget. But you do, you just get sucked right into the story. The film opens with the Pi Kappa Sig sorority house. We see a nice shot of it. It is heavily decorated for the holidays. And we hear a very somber rendition of Silent Night being sung by a choir somewhere off in the distance. And at first we see these sort of passive observation shots of what's happening in the house through the first story windows. There's a lot going on in there. You know, you have all the sorority girls and they're planning this big party. Their boyfriends are over. Everybody's getting it all together. So we see that through these sheer curtains, through several different windows. And I've always been a fan of that. Um, But then it switches. We're not seeing it as a passive observer anymore. Now we're seeing the house from a very shaky POV of someone who is breathing very heavily. And this person finds their way to a trellis and crawls up it and into the attic. It cuts back and forth between this shaky POV of this mystery person and all of the hullabaloo happening in the house. And throughout this, we are introduced to the variety of characters that we'll be with, you know, throughout the film. We meet Barb, played by Margot Kidder, and we learn more about her from the beginning than we do any of the other girls in the house, so much so that it really almost seems like she's gonna be our main character. Her mom called, she talks to her mom about going home for the holidays, and then learns that her mother has some kind of a new boyfriend, and she doesn't want Barb to come home. Barb gets upset, and then she starts drinking pretty heavily. So even that, it all happens kind of in the background, while everything else is happening, we learn so much about Barb right from the very beginning. In addition to Barb, we also have Claire Harrison. She seems like a very sweet girl. We almost immediately establish that of the girls in this particular sorority, Claire is the good girl. She has a boyfriend named Chris who lives in town here. He's from the town. We also have Phil, played by Andrea Martin. Now we don't really learn a whole lot about Phil except that she's dating a very funny guy named Patrick. And then we have Jess played by Olivia Hussey. Now, she is our final girl. She is actually the one character that I feel has the least amount of personality. We learn a little bit about her life and the circumstances um, that she finds herself in, the situation that she's in, but as far as her personality is concerned, yeah, she just doesn't have a whole lot. She does have this very sweet quality to her. This kind of like doe-eyed look about her at all times. You definitely feel the urge to protect her, to keep her safe. You don't want anything bad happening to her, but yeah, shoot. I was it's the one complaint I have about the film is I wish that they had given Jess a little bit more personality. But she's surrounded by characters with big personalities, so She is very beautiful. She's Olivia Hussey. You know, she's Juliet, which I don't know if this is true or not, but I found it kind of funny. Uh, Evidently, uh, Olivia Hussey auditioned for the role of Roxanne in the movie Roxanne. And while she was at that audition, Steve Martin was there and he stopped her and he was like, "Oh my god, you are in one of my favorite movies of all time." And she assumed that he was going to say Romeo and Juliet, which is I think the most kind of it's the role that she was most well known for. And also it's Romeo and Juliet, but no, apparently Steve Martin was a huge Black Christmas fan. <laughs> and so I thought that was kind of cool. I don't know how true that is. It was a factoid from IMDb, but if it's true, it makes me very happy. After Margot has the conversation on the phone with her mother where she realizes she won't be going home for the holidays, she gets pretty pissed off and starts inviting all the girls to go skiing with her as a distraction. Claire Harrison says no she already has other plans presumably with her townie boyfriend Chris and Barb gives her a hard time but the hard time is cut short as the girls receive another phone call this time it is not Barb's mother this time it is someone they refer to only as the moaner now we immediately get the impression that the phone call that they receive right now is something that they have received several other versions of in the past this is somebody that has been calling them for at least a little while now they're used to it. They've given him a nickname. All the girls come running to gather around the phone and Jess, who is the one who answered it, holds the receiver out. And all of the girls listen to what is definitely the most disturbing, obscene phone call I have ever seen depicted in a movie before. Like, this is not Ghostface asking you, you know, what your favorite scary movie is. This is a seriously disturbed individual, growling and snarling and gasping, sobbing at times, moaning and screaming. A lot of what he says is unintelligible. Some of the things he says are very overtly sexual. It's, they're, they're really creative Obscene phone calls, and they are very unsettling, even now, like watching this so many decades later. It is, they're disturbing. And while they were filming these different phone calls, they weren't listening to anybody on the phone. Bob Clark was being the obscene caller. And he was just saying, I don't know, general obscene phone caller stuff. And they really amped it up in post-production. Nobody on set had any idea that the things their characters would be listening to would be this extreme. And it really works very well. So they have this obscene phone caller that's been calling the sorority. All the girls sit around and listen. Barb, in particular, at first seems entertained by it, but then grabs the phone from Jess and tells the caller off, which really upsets both the caller, who then hangs up, and Claire Harrison. It's really cool, too, the way they did it, because this is not, like, an organized killer. This is not somebody who is trying to lure these women into some sort of seductive trap. This is a very mentally ill person. But right at the end of the conversation, right before he hangs up, he changes tone completely, switches gears, and just says very calmly to Barb, I'm going to kill you. Claire scolds Barb for what she feels is provoking the the phone caller. Even telling him off is something that Claire thinks nobody should be doing. They should just be ignoring it. Barb gets offended. She's already a little lit. So, you know, she gives Claire a pretty hard time. Claire gets upset, goes upstairs to pack because she's going to be meeting her father tomorrow to spend Christmas with him. This is also when we learn that a girl from town was raped a couple of weeks earlier. And it's Claire who reminds everyone of that, I believe. Any further speculation is interrupted with the arrival of Mrs. Mack, played by Marion Waldman, and she is Fabulous. She is the house mother for Pie Kappesig. She's an aged actress or, you know, performance artist of some kind. The girls present her with their Christmas gift to her, which is a big green and white floral mumu. We also see her throughout the film, um, but particularly on this first night, like, breaking off from the crowd and going to these little spots where she has hidden little secret stashes of liquor, like, all over the house. She hid a bottle of liquor in a hollowed-out book, Behind the toilet, inside the closet, although that one was empty. You get the impression that Mrs. Mack is not super stoked to be a house mother. She also does this thing where she like brushes her teeth, but she's like singing as she's doing it. I cannot do Mrs. Mack justice. If you don't watch this movie for any other reason, watch it for her because she is hilarious. While they're giving her her gift and she's pretending to like it. And they force her to put it on. And there are a lot of jokes flying around upstairs in Claire's bedroom. She sees Claude, the big fluffy house cat that belongs to the sorority. And she nuzzles him and lets him go. And then she starts to pack and she hears this very strange meowing from inside her closet. And she thinks that it's Claude, the cat that she just saw. But she also asks like who's there a couple of times as she's kind of making her way toward the closet to investigate, which suggests to me that she might suspect that it's not Claude, that it's either Claude or a person making cat noises in her closet. But she keeps going forward asking who it is. We get a nice shot of her through the plastic covering of of some of the clothes in the closet, and then she gets strangled to death suffocated by the plastic and dragged up into the attic they play a lot with shadows upstairs like in the emptier parts of the house where this mystery person this claire's killer is walking around the house and all we see are the shadows and i think i mentioned this a little bit uh, when i talked about prom night when wendy is trying to escape the killer in the school while prom is happening and it's like all she has to do is turn around and walk you know, 30 feet and she's at the gymnasium doors and she's in the prom and she's safe, but she doesn't. And so she's so close to sanctuary, but she never gets there. Um, and nobody knows that it's happening. It's it, There's so much of that in Black Christmas that is a huge part of this movie. All of this horrible stuff that happens, it happens right under everyone's noses or right above their noses, I should say. And that's really frightening to me. So Claire has been killed. She's the first kill that we see. And at no point do we see who kills her. I think we all are pretty certain from the beginning that whoever killed her is the same person that spoke to them on the phone. So there's very little mystery that the phone calls are coming from inside the house. Which the original script for Black Christmas, which was um, entitled Stop Me was inspired in part by that urban legend of the babysitter receiving phone calls from inside the house. But it was also inspired by... Um uh, the, the a series of murders that took place in Montreal at the hands of a man named Wayne Clifford Bowden in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. He was a serial killer and a rapist. They referred to him as the vampire rapist because he bit the breasts of his victims. Anyway, I don't want to talk about him. I just, I think that it's an interesting case, especially when you consider the ground that Black Christmas broke within the horror genre. And then you look at the case of Wayne Clifford Bowden, and Bowden was the first killer ever convicted in North America as a direct result of odontological evidence. So I thought that was interesting. It was a groundbreaking case uh, that inspired a groundbreaking horror film. While we are peering through the little windows into the lives of, of all of these people, Mrs. Mack and, and the other girls, um, Jess receives a phone call. And I thought, I always thought that this was really cool because. Jess's boyfriend, Peter, and I'm going to get into this a little bit more later, but we, the audience, are supposed to think that Peter is the killer. And unlike Prom Night and many other movies that came after Black Christmas, they do a very good job of creating in Peter a believable red herring. The first thing that they do to establish that suspicion is so subtle. The first time that we see them receive an obscene phone call, when jess answers it and realizes that it's it's the moaner she calls out to all the other girls and she says it's him and then the very next phone call is peter calling for jess and when phil answers it she says hey jess it's him and i just always really liked that because i felt that that was a very clever way to kind of subconsciously plant in our minds a connection also fun fact the guy who plays peter Kier delia i think i'm pronouncing his last name correctly i've never actually seen him interviewed But he was Dave in 2001, A Space Odyssey. So Jess gets on the phone with Peter and tells him that she needs to meet with him and talk with him about something. And it's clearly very serious. So they arrange to meet the next day. Before the night ends, we get one final shot of Claire now seated in a rocking chair up in the attic with the plastic over her face and... The killer is rocking her and singing a very unsettling rendition of Little Baby Bunting. The next morning, we see outside of the campus Claire Harrison's dad, Mr. Harrison, who I think is so fucking cute. I just want to put him in my pocket. He's adorable. And he's standing outside of the campus waiting for Claire. They were supposed to meet there, and he was going to take her home for the holidays, but she doesn't show. Some asshole child throws a snowball... At Mr. Harrison, it hits him in the face and knocks his glasses off. Kind of in the same vein as, um... Was it Halloween 4 or 5? I can't remember where Dr. Loomis is hitchhiking. And this car full of, like, cute college-aged girls act like they're going to stop and pick him up, and it's one of the only times in the entire Halloween series that we see Dr. Loomis smile, but then the girls speed up really quickly and make fun of him, and it's like one of the most heart-wrenching moments is seeing him get just completely trolled by this car full of girls. It was a similar moment to me seeing Mr. Harrison get hit in the face by the snowball. But some other college guy helps him up and turns out that um, Pi Kappa Sig is the sister sorority to this guy's fraternity. And so he gives Mr. Harrison directions to the sorority house. And when he gets there, it's, we, we get some more of that just really well-timed, well-written humor. Mr. Harrison ends up in Claire's bedroom where she has several posters. One is that it's a really famous image. I remember them selling it at Spencer's Gifts when I was in junior high school. It's just of this really sweet-looking, grandma-ly-type elderly woman with like a quilt over her legs and she's sitting in a rocking chair and she has little glasses. And it's a multi-shot of her slowly flipping the camera off. And so that poster is on Claire's wall. And then there's another poster, again, another really popular image of uh, two people having missionary sex and their bodies form a peace sign. So Mr. Harrison is kind of looking around his daughter's room and Mrs. Mack is trying very hard to pretend to be like a nice upstanding member of society, a reliable house mother to the college girls and she ends up at one point covering up the ass of one of the people in the peace sign sex poster with her hand and having like this whole conversation with Mr. Harrison trying very hard to assure him that his daughter is a good girl but Mr. Harrison is clearly traumatized by everything that he sees in his daughter's room and we hear more moaning from the attic we see another shot of Claire up there 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 are a lot of those throughout the film constant reminders that there is something happening in the attic that there is a body up there that no one is finding. And then we're at the conservatory, where Jess is having the conversation with Peter that she arranged to have today, where she tells him that she's pregnant and she is having an abortion. And Peter is not happy. He's especially mad at Jess for telling him this right before what is evidently a very important musical performance that he has to give at the conservatory that day. They decide that they'll talk about it more later that night. That story of Jess being pregnant and wanting to have an abortion and Peter not wanting her to and the violence that occurs, you know, throughout the second and third acts of the film. When I first saw the movie, that moved me on a very personal and political level. And I always felt that that abortion story was a part of a sort of deeper underlying very strong pro-choice message bob clark has since said because other people felt the same way bob clark has said that he never actually intended there to be any political statement in the film whatsoever, that it was really just a, a situation that that was created, you know, for the characters. I don't know what Roy Moore might've said about it, you know, the writer himself, but Bob Clark insisted there was no political motivation. I'm always going to feel that there is a little bit of subtext there. And I will always appreciate the film for that. that but I also respect that according to Bob Clark, that was never really the intent. It was supposed to be politically neutral, you know? Um, Then we're back at the sorority house where the party for underprivileged kids is in full swing and Barb is in the process of getting a very small child drunk on champagne. Phil's boyfriend, Patrick, is dressed as Santa and he's delivering a classic Santa Claus performance where he tops everything off by saying, ho, 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 fuck, because he's mad that Phil is going to be going skiing with Barb. And Claire's dad is now in attendance at the party. He's just sort of watching everything happen. We get another obscene phone call. And this time the moaner is talking about uh, two people named Billy and Agnes. And then now we're at the police station later that day. It's hard to talk about this film in a linear way because so much happens so quickly. And there are so many different little stories going on that connect to the larger story. But some of the kids end up going to the police station and they want to report Claire is missing. Here's where we meet Sergeant Nash. He is fantastic. Definitely one of my other favorite characters in the film. But he doesn't initially take Claire's disappearance seriously. Nobody really thinks that she's missing at this point. You know, it being the holiday, this being a college town. At one point, Sergeant Nash asks uh, Barb, who is there with them, for the phone number to the sorority house. And she lies to him about the phone number. And she tells him that the number is fellatio 20880. And he's like, what? And she's like, yeah. Felatio. it's a new exchange and she spells it for him and everything and he writes it down and that joke delivers way later in the movie mrs mack goes back to the sorority house where jess is because she's just returned from her conversation with peter mrs mack tells jess that claire is missing and jess was the last person to see claire she becomes immediately concerned and goes out to a hockey rink where claire's boyfriend chris is practicing chris absolutely takes it seriously i really like chris a lot Not just because he's wearing basically a giant grizzly bear for a coat, but also because he's very nice. Um, And you can tell that he really cares about Claire. He steps up and gets involved. and He goes... To the police station now with Jess and Claire's dad in tow. He's a townie, so he knows the cops and he insists that they look harder. And by this point, we have also now met Lieutenant Fuller, played by just the ever wonderful John Saxon. And he's a good cop. He takes them into his office and they have a very serious discussion about Claire. While this is all going on, Peter is back at the conservatory bombing the hell out of his piano recital, or whatever you want to call it, whatever that performance was that he was supposed to give. It's like if I were trying to be a concert pianist. It, he's just mashing all of the keys indiscriminately. It sort of sounds like at one point it might have been music, but it's bad. And he's so upset that after the people who were watching him perform leave, he takes a mic stand and just completely destroys the piano, which Was it his piano? I don't actually know whose piano it was. I'm gonna say it wasn't his. I think it belonged to the school, but whoever's it is, he destroys it. Back at the police station, we now learn that another young girl, a high school age girl named Janice is also missing. Her mother is there. Every line of dialogue in this film is important. Even the seemingly innocuous ones, even the things that are just, they're said so quickly and we move on so fast from them. It's all important. We're back at the sorority house now where a very drunken Barb is talking to Mr. Harrison about turtle sex um and then breaks down and we realize that she blames herself and suspects that everyone else blames her for claire's disappearance because she was giving her such a hard time earlier so barb's pretty upset with herself and you know lashing out at everybody around her so phil tells her to go to bed and she does mrs mac keeps assuring mr harrison that nothing is wrong with claire that she's probably going to turn up at any minute but Chris, Jess, and and Phil are not convinced and they gather Mr. Harrison up and they all go out to join a search party, which has now been organized by the local police to search for both Claire and Janice. Now I really liked the whole search party aspect of this film. I thought it was one of those things that really solidified this town and the people within it. At no point in the movie do I feel like it's trying to shove the horror down my throat either. That's also something I really enjoy about it. Again, it's just a town filled with nice people, and also some bad ones. And I don't know, I I like that. There's a realism to Black Christmas that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a low-budget Christmas-themed slasher movie, but it's there. So we're pretty far into the film at this point, and we've only actually seen this mystery person kill one person, which is Claire, and so much of what has happened has happened because Claire has gone missing. And now we're about to get to our second kill, which is that of Mrs. Mack. And again, it's because of the damn cat. The cat actually causes a lot of problems in Black Christmas. Sergeant Nash and the cat. I mean, Sergeant Nash absolutely gets at least one person killed, but the cat gets at least two people killed. This killer is pretending to be the cat and luring people into their deaths, which is really creative, but it also makes me wish they didn't have a fucking cat. Granted, it is a very cute cat. It's like super fluffy gray. It looks a lot like my coworker Lizette's cat, Sherlock. Those of you who know Sherlock, that's exactly what Claude the cat looks like. So. Obviously, they couldn't get rid of it. But again, the killer starts meowing and lures Mrs. Mac up into the attic where we get the second kill of the film, which is, the, for me, the weirdest kill and definitely the least realistic. She sticks her head up into the attic and she's looking around, yelling at Claude, being hilarious. And uh, she sees Claire's body rocking in the rocking chair and then very slowly turns around. And the killer, all we see are his hands holding this giant, like, crane hook that's for some reason suspended from the ceiling. I have no idea what it would have been used for. There are some, like, carnival props up in the attic, which suggests to me that, like, maybe because it's a sorority house and they do a lot of charity work and, you know, things for, like, local kids, maybe they had some sort of sorority organized carnival at one point. Maybe the crane hook thing had something to do with that. I don't know, but he's holding it up and his hands are kind of shaking like it's really hard for him to hold it. And then he lets it go. It's, it happens very slowly over quite a bit of time. Mrs. Mack had ample opportunity to just climb down the ladder, leave the attic and get out of there. But she doesn't. She just sort of stares at all of it. And he lets the hook go and it impales her in the face. She's it's It like goes like through her neck and then he drags the rest of her body up into the attic. I can't see a hook doing that to a human face just from being dropped in its general direction from like 10 feet away. But definitely some of the more creative kills and killer tactics in this movie. So Mrs. Mac is dead. She misses her cab, the cabbie gets pissed and leaves, and we see more of that shaky POV. Um, and then he starts screaming. The killer starts screaming upstairs, which is also something that I really like. We don't know anything about this killer, and there is nothing that you could even possibly construe as, like, cool or seductive about him. And it's something that you see a lot in horror movies is we want to make the killers, we want to give them backstory, we want to make them tragic, or we want to make them, in one way or another, seductive. We want them to be looming and powerful and... The kind of killer that you can create action figures of and walk around wearing, you know, like Jason Voorhees pajamas and, you know, dress up as sexy Freddy Krueger for Halloween This is not a killer you can do that with. And I love that. It makes him scarier to me. Um, if I haven't said it enough, Black Christmas I find is actually pretty frightening. So after this happens, the search party is in full swing and it finds Janice who has definitely been murdered. Whether or not it's the rapist that they mentioned from a couple of weeks earlier, whether or not it is the killer that is clearly roaming about the sorority house, we don't know who did it. We just know that Janice is dead. And Jess goes back to the sorority house, immediately receives another obscene phone call. And this time, Jess is like, fuck this. And as soon as the caller hangs up, she gets on the phone with the cops and she reports the obscene phone calls. While she's reporting them, Peter, who had apparently been waiting for her, uh, went upstairs and took a nap. Up there because he comes down and surprises her and the two of them have an even bigger fight about the abortion where he threatens her if she tries to abort the baby. He proposes marriage to her and then tells her that she'll be sorry. The other weird thing is that during that conversation Peter tells Jess that Claire is all right and he says it to her in a very confident way that also raises suspicion in the mind because it's like how do you know How do you know what's going on with Claire? You don't know. In retrospect, I think he was just writing off her concern because he was too focused on, you know, the primary problem to him, which is trying to convince Jess to keep the baby. Some of the kids were still at the station when Jess called in to report the obscene phone calls and they overheard Sergeant Nash repeating the address of the sorority house on the phone. And so now everybody at the station is pretty well aware that not only is Claire Harrison missing, but the house in which she lives has been receiving these, these disturbing obscene phone calls and Lieutenant Fuller is pissed that Sergeant Nash didn't make the connection. Lieutenant Fuller calls a man named Graham who comes with them to the sorority house to tap the phone. And that's something else that I really enjoy about the movie is all of the phone tapping stuff because they really go into like great detail with it they explain to all of the girls how the wiretapping works we see him actually take apart the phone and put in the tap and then for the rest of the movie that tap is extremely important and i don't know why i like it but i really like it so then we have three primary locations you have the sorority house the police station and the phone company where graham is helping the police trace these phone calls which thankfully are coming in hot like there are a lot of phone calls this night and while they're tapping the phone Peter has not left like he stormed out but he's still lurking around outside and he's just not happy everybody leaves except for Jess and Phil who is now Phil is also kind of breaking down she's really upset with them finding Janice and not being able to find Claire Phil becomes convinced that Claire is dead She's crying, and then finally she just insists, you know, I am I think I'm just exhausted. I need to go up to bed. So she goes to bed. So now we have Barb and Phil both sleeping upstairs, and Jess is the only one waiting for a phone call. And while she's waiting, Barb has an asthma attack in her sleep. And this is just another little thing that really hammers home how lovable the character of Barb is because you just... (sighs) Margot Kidder was amazing. When Jess goes up to check on her... She's kind of half awake, half asleep, very disoriented, kind of speculating out loud about like why she woke up and why she was having an asthma attack. And it just, it's, I love her delivery of those lines. I love her acting there in that moment because it is so real and it's very vulnerable, but it's also at the same time got that pragmatic quality to her, that That very, it's like a deeply rooted personality quirk of that character that still shines through in such a vulnerable, disoriented moment. And only Margot Kidder could have done that, in my opinion. She did it so well. Jess gets her back to bed. Uh, A little miniature choir of Christmas carolers come to the house. And this is the second time that we hear Christmas carols throughout the film. Jess goes outside to watch and listen to them. It's during that time that the killer goes down into Barb's room and stabs her repeatedly with a unicorn statue. It's the most brutal, also most artfully shot, and just most memorable kill of the film. We don't actually see the impact. We see a lot of the aftermath and we see parts of her and the room as she's reacting. It's it's very well shot, very well done, and it's it's frightening. So that's I think it's the most memorable kill. And after Barb is dead, the phone rings again, distracting Jess away from the carolers. And this is where we kind of start to put together the pattern that after somebody dies, the killer calls. And she tries to keep him on the phone this time, sort of. Peter had remarked during their argument that she was treating the abortion like having a wart removed. And when the obscene phone caller calls, he repeats that sentence like having a wart removed. And it really throws Jess off. And the caller hangs up, and there wasn't enough time for the police to trace it. And Lieutenant Fuller starts to question Jess about that moment, you know, where she reacted very personally to something that the caller said, but he's distracted away. Because one of his cops got shot in the butt and he gets brought in and he's, like, got his, like, pants down around his knees. And it turns out this older guy saw him on his property and thought he was a trespasser. We never find out, you know, what happened with that cop. We just know he got shot in the butt. Back at the sorority house at this point with the remark about the wart being removed, Jess... Full-on suspects that it's Peter. Phil wakes up and the two of them talk about it. Phil is diehard defending Peter, and I appreciate that about her, because that's the thing about her character. She's very kind-hearted. She couldn't even remotely imagine that Peter would do something like this. And she also seems to be one of the more grounded characters as well. And she kind of tries to calm Jess down. And the two of them talk it out as another phone call comes in. This time it seems that it is Peter. At least It sounds like it's Peter. They do have a discussion, and Peter talks to her about the baby, but I don't know where Peter could have been calling from, because we established just not that long ago that he was standing outside. I have my theories that that's not even Peter on the phone. We know from the obscene phone calls that these girls have been receiving that this whoever this caller is is very good at doing a variety of different voices. Like, at one point, Jess even thinks that it's two people and that one of them is a woman, like he also like can perfectly emulate a baby crying. He can very convincingly be a cat. Part of me wonders if that phone call wasn't actually with the killer. Either way, Lieutenant Fuller, who's been listening in on their phone calls from the station, calls her and they have yet another discussion where he presses her for more information and she finally like, you know, lets up and reveals that she's pregnant and that she was going to have an abortion. So now Lieutenant Fuller is on board with suspecting Peter. But Phil, continuing to defend Peter, helps. Jess suss out that Peter was there at the house when one of the phone calls came in so it couldn't have been Peter. Now the guy from the phone company did point out that Mrs. Mack had her own private phone line but they just skirt right over that and nobody is considering it as a possibility. It just doesn't occur to anyone that any of these phone calls could be coming from the other line. And so that in Jess's mind clears Peter for the most part but Lieutenant Fuller's not convinced. After all this Phil goes upstairs to check on Barb. And we say goodbye to the beautiful and glorious Andrea Martin who dies. We don't see how she dies um, at all. We just see the door shutting in Barb's bedroom, but she dies. And I think this is when Lieutenant Fuller finds the destroyed piano at the conservatory. And then another phone call comes in at the sorority and we get some more shaky POV. There's a lot of really good use of POV in this film. Not quite as much as like, you know, Peeping Tom and and not really as well done as Halloween in my opinion, but it's there and it's good. This time, Jess manages to keep the caller on the phone long enough for them to trace it. And this is when Lieutenant Fuller realizes that the phone calls are in fact coming from inside the sorority house. That look on John Saxon's face when he realizes realizes the calls are coming from inside the house and he gets on the walkie and he's trying to walkie Jennings who is the cop they had stationed outside of the sorority house you've got that camera panning up the length of the driver's side of the car, up to Jennings, whose throat has been slit. It's one of those beautiful moments that you've seen so many times, recreated in so many slasher films since this one. I also have another question about the cop outside. We know that Peter is not the one making the obscene phone calls, and we know that Peter is not the one killing the girls. However, Peter is pretty emotionally and mentally unstable. He is capable of being destructive. He has threatened Jess and he has been lurking around outside. We have not seen any evidence that the person responsible for the phone calls and the killings has stepped one foot outside of the sorority since he went into it at the beginning of the film. So did the killer in the attic kill the cop or did Peter So Lieutenant Fuller walkies Sergeant Nash at the station, and he instructs Sergeant Nash to call Jess and tell her to put the phone down and walk out of the house, but not to tell her that the calls are coming from inside. And he says it expressly, like a couple of times, and he tells Nash that if he fucks it up, he'll kill him. (laughs) And what does Nash do? He fucks it up, he calls Jess, and he does try to follow... Lieutenant Fuller's instructions. He tells her to just put the phone down and walk away and don't ask any questions. But you know, Jess insists on asking questions. She wants to know why. And she's not putting the phone down fast enough. So Nash in a moment of desperation blurts out, Jess, the calls are coming from inside the house. So Jess knows now that the phone calls are coming from inside the house but also believes that Barb and Phil are still asleep upstairs and that they're now in danger. So she goes over to the fireplace, grabs a fire poker, and decides to be the hero. She goes upstairs to try to save her friends. She goes up to Barb's bedroom door and she opens it and she sees both Barb and Phil lying dead, kind of piled up together on the bed and Barb's eyes are crossed. Her eyes are fucking crossed. Like whoever, I don't know why Margot did it. I hope she did it to be funny because if she did, it absolutely worked. They're covered in blood, a little bit more of that thick kind of Argento style blood, not quite as extreme, but Jess is terrified. And then we have what is my personal favorite moment in the film. The killer is standing right behind the bedroom door and he's peering down at Jess through the crack in the door and he starts whispering to Jess through the door and she looks up and sees just one eye staring out at her and it's really fucking freaky. It freaks me out every, still to this day. And with that frightening moment, the final girl chase begins. She ends up in the basement He's trying to get into the basement door and we get a really tight shot on the lock and he's just banging and it's just very, I love it. Finally, he gives up and Jess is down in the basement looking around, kind of trying to figure out an escape route. She's still like clutching that fire poker. And this is when we hear Peter outside and he's looking around in the downstairs windows and he sees Jess in there. So he breaks one of the windows open and comes in. And he's calling for her, but at this point she's having like a Sydney Prescott moment. She suspected that it was Peter, and then something happened to clear Peter's name. But now here he is, conveniently, right as this is happening... Is it Peter? I don't know. So she's kind of trying to hide from him, but it's two ladies already seen her. He, he climbs through the basement and comes toward her and he's like, Jess, why didn't you answer me? What are you doing down here? What's happening? Right at this moment, Lieutenant Fuller arrives at the sorority house and we hear blood-curdling screams coming from the basement. And when they get to the basement, they see Jess slumped down on the ground, half-conscious with a fire poker in her hand, and a dead Peter, bloody, eyes wide open, laying on her lap. And everybody thinks that that's it. They found Barb and Phil's bodies. They think Peter did it. And so they take Jess up to bed. They lay her in bed and the room is just like full of people, everybody talking. It's really nice because Patrick, you know, Phil's boyfriend, the ho-ho-ho-fuck Santa Claus, he just sort of disappears uh, kind of, you know, toward the earlier part of the film. And then nobody ever says anything about him again, except right there in that moment, Uh, Chris, Claire's boyfriend, mentions Patrick to Lieutenant Fuller. He's like, somebody should call Patrick. And Lieutenant Fuller's like, like, who? And he's like, Phil's boyfriend. And it's almost like he's reminding the audience that Patrick existed as well. Mr. Harrison is sitting in the room with Claire and he stands up to leave the room and immediately collapses, presumably from, you know, emotional and physical exhaustion. So then everybody else in the room kind of works together to get Mr. Harrison out. They want to take him to a hospital. They leave Claire alone. And we get some of the more beautiful shots of the film of the now empty rooms in which the girls who had been killed, you know, once lived and 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 we're back up in the attic with the bodies of Claire and Mrs. Mack. And the killer is standing right next to Claire's body in the rocking chair. And he's saying, Agnes, it's Billy. And then we pan out to the exterior of the sorority house looking in and we see Claire's plastic covered face staring dead out the window. As we continue to zoom back, we get that full shot of the sorority house, almost identical to the shot from the beginning of the film. There's somebody right outside of the house like smoking. I assume it's a police officer. Um, And then right as the credits begin to roll, the phone rings from inside. And it's quiet at first and it gets louder and louder nobody's answering the phone inside and the credits are rolling there's no like rock song to like end it no it's just like dead silence and a phone ringing at increasing volumes it's great i love the way that the movie ends it's one of my favorite things about black christmas we never learn who the killer is we never see the killer's face we don't know anything about him apart from what tiny bits we're able to glean from his you know batshit crazy rantings And we also have no idea what happened to Jess. We know she was left alone in the house. And we also know that the moaner typically calls right after he kills someone. But I feel like it's definitely fair to ask the question. In the time it took for us to hear him deliver that line about Agnes and then it pans all the way out, and then the phone rings, would that have been enough time for him to get down from the attic into Jess's room, kill her, and then get up to Mrs. Max's room to use the phone? It's not a lot of time. Evidently there were two additional endings to this film made, one where Jess absolutely survives and one where she absolutely dies, but instead they went neither way and just left it ambiguous, which I'm very glad they did. It's one of the most beloved things about Black Christmas is the way that it ends. Black Christmas was originally titled Silent Night Evil Night. Thankfully, they changed the name as it's very close to both Silent Night Deadly Night from 1984 and Silent Night Bloody Night from 1972. I'm really glad. Uh, they changed it to Black Christmas although you know if there were three separate horror movies all of which are uniquely entertaining that all share some elaboration of the Silent Night song title I wouldn't be super unhappy as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode um, there have been two attempts to successfully remake this film uh and I have not seen the most recent attempt from Blumhouse. Uh, I did, however, see the remake from 2006, um, which Andrea Martin, who played Phil in the original, did come back for that one. I was not a fan of that film, but that's just me, and by now you guys know that this is just that's just how I feel about remakes. I'm just not a fan of most of them. Other Christmas-themed horror movies that I've personally always been a big fan of include Silent Night, Deadly Night, Krampus, and Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale. The latter in particular I highly recommend if you have not watched Rare Exports yet. Please do not celebrate another Christmas without it. It is fantastic. Oh, also, I forgot to mention, although it isn't a horror movie, don't forget to watch Die Hard this year because much like Rare Exports and Black Christmas, no Christmas is complete without John McClane. I hope you enjoyed this. I never really know what to call this thing that I do with movies because I I don't know if if you can call it a review or an analysis or just a recap. I don't know, but whatever it is, I hope that you enjoyed it. I am really glad that I was able to record an episode tonight, guys. I I hope that you have just a spectacular holiday, whether you're celebrating Hanukkah or Christmas or Kwanzaa, or as I said, just, just another December. I hope that it's a really good one. I should be back next week where I will hopefully be talking about Terror Train and absolutely 100% giving away a Slaughter High t-shirt to somebody. (laughs) Once again, I would like to thank my patrons, Eli, Suzy Q, Alan, Chad, Mel. Thank you guys so much. If you are new to the podcast and you, for some reason, don't hate it, and you would like to become involved in it somehow, there are a couple of ways to do that. You could also join the Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash final Or if you can't join the Patreon, which I totally understand if you can't, you can still go to that page, scroll down to about halfway down the about me section, and you'll find an open invitation to the final girl Friday discord. Please come and join us. If you're not a fan of discord or Patreon, you can also just email me at finalgirlconfessions@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Let's keep this conversation going. I would love to hear your thoughts on Black Christmas or any of your favorite Christmas horror movies or any other holiday horror movies that you love. Feel free also to share with me some of your favorite holiday memories or nightmares. Whatever, just talk to me about Christmas and scary shit because that's that's what I live for. Well, the second thing, I I don't really live for Christmas. I'm gonna stop talking now. Happy holidays and until next time, creep it real.